especially in our trials and sufferings. And we have a long text this morning. As you glance down in Isaiah 40, you'll see that it's 31 verses. And by God's grace, we will uh, fly high over them this morning to gain a greater appreciation of who God is. With that said, I want to read the first five verses to set God's word before us, and then we'll turn to him in prayer. Scripture reads, Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall be become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Well, this is the beginning of God's word this morning. Let's, let's look to him in prayer. Lord, we know that your glory has put flesh on and his name is Jesus. And so we pray this morning as your word go forth, the word made flesh would walk among us by your spirit. And that you would accomplish your pur purposes in each and every heart. Lord, we pray that same prayer for all the believers and all the gospel-preaching churches here in this town and the towns in all of northern Arizona, that you would send revival and reformation and that you would send forth your word to accomplish your purposes and build your church. And this morning, Lord, would you take our hearts, mold them into the image of your Son. And Lord, we, many of us, know many people who are going through trials and troubles even we ourselves are experiencing the same. And so, Lord, would you give us a greater conception of yourself through your word to understand you all the more and trust you when we, when we question whether you're trustworthy. So to that end, Lord, would you let the words of my mouth, the meditation of our hearts, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And all of God's people said, amen. Although people look all around in all different places, only God and God alone can bring beauty out of ashes. All the troubles and the trials that we see in life and experience in life, as much as the world may try, self-help programs, philosophies, and politics, good to others, only God is able, capable, and willing to bring beauty out of ashes. But when you and I and those close to us are in the midst of suffering, when we are suffering a trial and troubles, that can be hard to believe. When you are in that vice of pain, it can be hard to believe that God will bring beauty out of ashes. In fact, it can at times be hard to believe that God is at all. For the Christian, Scripture tells us, think Hebrews 12, that God disciplines us as a loving father. He loves us. Sometimes his fatherly discipline may be because of sin, but more often than not in our lives, his discipline is formative in, in nature rather than corrective in nature. Corrective discipline because of sin, formative discipline like a coach with an athlete, parent with a child. The father fathers us, forming us into the image of Jesus. And the father, more often than not, permits and appoints trials to shape us into the image of Jesus. We live in a fallen world. The world is cursed. The nations rage against the gospel of God. And when he permits and appoints those instruments in his hands, our suffering as believers can be volcanic 
and cataclysmic in nature. Think Job. And oftentimes, our troubles and trials can be glacial. Long, slow, and prolonged. Think Moses, his 40 years in the wilderness to prepare him for another 40 years in the wilderness to serve God's good gospel purposes. Both Job and Moses, the volcanic and glacial sufferings in their lives, both of those men cried out in their difficulties and in both cases, in their crying out to God as you and I cry out to God, Moses on Sinai and Job naked in dust and ashes, God's response was the same to Moses, it was the same to Job, and his response is the same to Israel in Isaiah 40, and his response is the same to you and I in our trials. You see, the tendency that people have is we want to know why. Why, Lord, for this unanswered prayer or this, that, and the other? But when God responded to Moses on the mountain and Job in the ash heap and uh, Israel in exile here in Isaiah 40 and to us as exiles in this world, God does not answer the why of our difficulties. And you need to understand that. He is not beholden to us. He doesn't give us the why. Sometimes he does. But here in Isaiah 40, as with Moses and Job and us, God does not give an answer of why for the difficulties and troubles. God gives an answer to of who. It's not why, it's who. And the who in these is who it is that is working in these trials, behind these trials, around these trials, and in and before and all around these troubles for glorious gospel purposes. And so God wants you to know who is at work in your trials, not why your trials are here. You might be in a period of prolonged glacial suffering. Or perhaps right now it's a cataclysmic and volcanic. Either way, God's purposes this morning is the same for us as it was for Israel in Isaiah 40. That his aim, as it was with Job, to simply give a greater revelation of himself as the antidote to suffer well for God's good purposes. And this morning, you may not be a follower of Christ. And what you need to understand is that God brings us, he will bring you to the end of yourself so that you might see that he has been your need and your hope all along. Pain, says C.S. Lewis, is God's megaphone to get our attention. So the question is, are you listening? And are you paying attention? As we walk through Isaiah 40 this morning, we move quickly through four parts. Here they are. Number one, point number one, we're going to see in the first two verses, which serve as a banner over the rest of not just this chapter, but the remainder of Isaiah, God is God of all comfort. And then we move into point number two, verses three through 11, that God is the glorious warrior shepherd. God is the glorious warrior shepherd. From there, we move into point number three. God is immeasurably worthy of worship, verses 12 through 24. And then we conclude our time in verses 25 to 31, where we discover that for us, in response to who God is, God's people wait for him. God's people wait for him. And so the big idea this morning, the big idea of Isaiah 40, is that God in Christ is our comforting shepherd in all our troubles. And so we wait for him. God in Christ is our comforting shepherd in all our troubles, and so we wait for him. Well, let's jump right in. Verses 1 and 2, God is the God of all comfort. Listen again to the, to the Spirit have come upon Isaiah, and God prophesies through Isaiah, and here's what the Lord says. Comfort. 
Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly. Note those words. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. And that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Well, if we have been reading through Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah has spent the vast majority of the previous 39 chapters, long chapters, pronouncing judgment and woe upon national Israel for breaking the Mosaic covenant and disobeying God, walking contrary to God's ways, disobeying the book of Deuteronomy everywhere, and then making fake gods for themselves so that they would orient their lives around these imaginary gods rather than the one true living God. And despite prophet after prophet after prophet calling these people to repentance, to covenantal faithfulness, the nation refused to obey and to repent, and so they repeatedly incurred God's judgment through the instrument of many surrounding nations, chief of which, if you look back, is Assyria in chapter 39, and then now prophesying in chapter 39, looking forward to Babylon to come a few hundred years later. And caught up in the disobedience of the nation was the righteous remnant who stayed faithful to God. And what God does is God gives us a glimpse of those people's perspective. Because the focus in the book up to these 39 chapters has been the disobedient people of Israel. But if you glance down to verse 27, here in Isaiah 40, we hear the megaphone of these people's hearts on display. We're going to discover that God interrogates his people in a loving way across this, this long chapter. But in verse 27, we are given a glimpse of the righteous remnant's perspective. And here it is. God says to them in verse 27, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? God, who sees our hearts and knows our thoughts before we think them, exposes to them what was going on in their hearts. They thought in all their trials and troubles that the all-seeing God couldn't see them. And they thought in all their difficulties that the righteous one was ignoring justice. And isn't that how we all tend to respond in our trials? Isn't that even why all across the Psalms, how long, O Lord, is the common refrain in our suffering? Don't we tend to respond in our trials and troubles deep down inside, wondering if the all-seeing God can't see us? Don't we even, as believers, think at times that God is punishing us? But dear Christian, God never punishes us. Do you know why? Because the punishment due to us was taken upon Jesus on the cross for our sins. And so we are prone to misinterpret our trials and troubles. And we're prone to misinterpret God's actions in our trials and troubles. We forget the story of Joseph. How what those brothers meant for evil, God meant for good. And we forget that Romans 8.28 is in our Bibles, that God is able to work in and through trials and troubles to shape us into the image of Jesus so that Jesus might get the glory of being the firstborn among many brothers. And so here in Isaiah 40, these Old Testament saints are just like us. My way is hidden from the Lord. He can't see, they think. My rights before God have been disregarded, even implicitly accusing God of injustice. And so here in Isaiah 40 and odd, God has now come down and beginning in these echoing words there in verse 1, God has come down to comfort these sufferers by giving them a greater revelation of who God is. He doesn't yet deliver them from their trials and troubles. He just gives them more of himself. 
In fact, if you look in verse 1 there in your Bibles, you see that that word comfort is doubled. Comfort, comfort. In the Hebrew way of writing the scriptures, when something was to be emphasized, the word was, was doubled. So when Isaiah sees the Lord in holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, that triple refrain is a cataclysmic shout that blows down the walls of the temple of how holy God is. And so the doubling of the word comfort here, when he says comfort, comfort my people, is like a shout that reverberates in our hearts that comfort is coming. God has come down. He's been a warrior against his enemies in these first 39 chapters, and he will continue to be a warrior against his enemies for time to come. But God has come down, and notice his disposition and actions towards his people. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly. Speak hope to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Do you hear those words? Comfort. Tenderly. The word comfort is a good translation of the Hebrew idea here. And to comfort someone is to ease grief. To comfort someone is to ease their distress. It can have both physical and internal, or what we would say emotional, dimensions, easing their heart. Given how these people were questioning the character of God, my way is hidden from the Lord, these words that God is speaking to them is, is not yet delivering them physically from their troubles, so the comfort that he is giving them is an emotional, intellectual, it's for the whole inner person, the whole inner man, these words speak to their heart, to the heart and their sorrows and their misunderstandings of who God is. The comfort is what follows in the remaining 30 verses of this chapter. In other words, when God declares comfort, his aim is to change your internal state. God's aim is to change any fixed false beliefs that you have about who God is and replace them with the truths of who God is. That's what the comfort is. More truth, more clearly seen, more cherished and treasured. And when he says tenderly, this is in contrast to the stern and harsh words of judgment pronounced in these first 39 chapters. Now there is the tenderness of a father picking up his hurting child. That is how God's words are going to pick us up and carry us here. Think, think then of this Old Testament comfort coming to Israel, what Jesus says to us, what, how Jesus beckons you and speaks tenderly to you to comfort you. Have you. Do you remember Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30? What does Jesus shout and proclaim with gentleness to all who are willing to hear? Jesus says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, says Jesus, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You must take your troubles to Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus, take your sins, which are the source of your troubles, to Jesus. And go to him and renounce those sins and rest before the throne of Christ. Take his yoke upon you. These words of tender comfort, both Jesus is in Matthew 11 and the Old Testament version of Jesus' words here in Isaiah 40. These words of tender comfort come. Now, as you look down in this lengthy passage, we're going to see that there's going to be three cycles of interrogation. We're going to see how God comforts his people. We're going to see how God speaks tenderly to them. Three cycles of interrogation, but first comes the gospel. 
First comes the gospel in these next verses. And so would you look with me then in the second point, verses 3 through 11. God is the glorious warrior shepherd. Here come the words of tenderness and comfort in suffering. A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level. And the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Verse 6, a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of gospel, good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up and fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might. And his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Isaiah here in chapter 40, looks back to chapter 7 regarding Emmanuel, the promise of God with us. And Emmanuel was promised in chapter 7 and chapters 9 and chapters 11, but now in these verses, and these verses look forward to the future, he is here. Verse 9, behold your God. God's aim is that he himself would come down and once again, like he did in the garden, walk across this earth. The picture is of every obstacle is removed for the Lord's arrival, as if the mountains bow down before him, and as if the valleys stand in honor before their king, so that all flesh will see, verse 5, the Lord's glory, the splendor of his perfections and wonder of his attributes displayed. Zion is personified. Zion was the mountain upon which both the temple and David's palace sat and the city around it. Zion is personified as preaching the gospel without fear. The the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, those words good news, good news is preach the gospel, preach the gospel. Zion's personified as preaching gospel without fear, not just that God has come, but to behold him, to be riveted and captivated, to marvel and wonder at the perfections of God himself. But you may hear the familiarities of these words. Indeed, Isaiah 40 is quoted by Matthew and Luke and Paul and Romans and and Peter. And here, these words of Zion are ultimately applied in Matthew 3 and in John 1 to to who? To John the Baptist. That John the Baptist is the one who is proclaiming and making straight the ways of the Lord. But see who God is. He arrives as the conquering, promised Davidic king to vanquish his enemies and yet the emphasis of the text, especially at the, at the end, in verse 11, that last verse, that he comes with gifts and recompense and repayment. This time not for enemies, but for his friends and followers. To reward those who have walked with him by his spirit faithfully. He's come to give gifts to his people whom he will lead 
and carry in his very arms. That is what God is like towards you in your suffering and in your salvation. God comes down as a warrior for his enemies and a warrior to rescue his people. And he comes down as a shepherd for his people. That is what God is like towards you in your suffering. So when the people say, God can't see me, they don't recognize that he's carrying them all along. That he's gently leading them all along. They have forgotten that both his rod and staff comfort them when they can't see him. When they think that God is being unjust toward them, he is being righteous in his ways. That is to say, God is the shepherd king who has come down for his people, for you. And this promise of the shepherd king runs through all the writing prophets, especially Ezekiel 34, but you know John 10. That this promise here in Isaiah 40 is looking forward to John 10 when we hear Jesus, God the Son incarnate, say, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Or verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. You see, what we need bound up in the gospel of our salvation is Christ taking our sins upon the cross in our place. Having lived a life that we couldn't and wouldn't live in our place and rising in our place. But we must not forget that in the salvation that he offers, it's not just salvation and he tells us to quit messing up, get out of my sight and don't do it again. No, he is the good shepherd who brings us into his flock to shepherd us and care for us. We need to remember and be reminded that King Jesus, promised in Isaiah 40, seen in John 10, has come. When he said, behold your God, behold the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him, behold his reward is with him, that began with the arrival and incarnation of Jesus. And so Jesus is gathering his sheep. Jesus has laid down his life for his own. Jesus has taken up his life from the grave and resurrected, in this case, himself by the Spirit to the Father. He poured out gifts upon the flock of his church. You see, the good news is here. The king has come. The king has conquered. Jesus the shepherd is gathering his flock. Are you part of it? Become part of it this morning. And this good news, you hear that, but still, still the degree of your suffering could cause you, or rather tempt you, is a better word to say, to tempt you to still doubt and to be discouraged and say, this may be your God, but this is not my God. And so God anticipates our doubt, mine and yours. God anticipates our discouragement in the remainder of this chapter, and this is where the gentle interrogation begins. Lest we think that Jesus is not caring of us, not tending us, not speaking comfort to us, not gentle and lowly, not with an easy yoke, even in our trials. There's more to the good shepherd king, Jesus, than meets the eye. And so if you doubt, if you are discouraged, come and welcome to Jesus. Come near for the Lord has a three series of questions of you that he wants to bring to you this morning. Which leads us to the third point. The first cycle of three questions, which take us to the end of the message. Cycle number one begins in verse 12. Point number three, 
God is immeasurably worthy of worship. You've heard the good news. You've heard this gospel of Jesus, but maybe you doubt. And so here is what God says to you in verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured or directed or counseled the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him to understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge? And who showed him the way of understanding? Verse 15, behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he, the Lord, takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. This first interrogation cycle are these rhetorical questions. Who, 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 who? And the answer to all of those is no one. No one. Only God and God alone can hold the waters of the earth in the cup of his hand. Only God can spread out pinky and thumb creating a span to measure the entire universe between the immensity of himself. Only God needs no counsel. We are becoming creatures. We are finite. We need counsel, but God needs none. He possesses all wisdom, all knowledge, perfectly at once. He knows everything there is to know without confusion or mixture at once, immediate recall, no hesitation. He does not need your advice. He does not need you to give him any information. You don't need to tell him because you cannot teach him. In fact, he knows your words before you even speak them. He does not need legal counsel on how to administer justice and righteousness, for he is in himself justice and righteousness. So perfect is our Lord in all of his manifold perfections that all the trees and creatures, beasts of the field, are insufficient to honor him as one unified sacrifice for the splendor of his worth. This is the God who is the warrior shepherd who has come down to rescue and save you. This is the God who looks down from the heavens and sees you in your troubles and wants to bring you comfort with his gospel. Indeed, verse 17, all the nations with all their might and all their wisdom and all their ingenuity and all their technology and all their their, their machines of war, even taken together at once, if the whole world could come against him, is less than nothing before him. The nations rage, they're in emptiness before him, and he mocks them. And this is the God who condescended and became flesh in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. To live for us, die for us, rise for us. It is this mighty God who is gentle and lowly invited you to take his yoke upon you. To gather you to himself as his own treasured possession. Do you believe that? Because it's true whether you believe it or not. But believe it. Take heart. Be comforted. That's why Isaiah says... Behold your God. And yet he continues. The Lord is not done. The Lord is not answering the why of the suffering. The Lord is answering who is working in and through the suffering. And so then he takes up cycle two. This is verses 18 to 24. The Lord continues his interrogation with his rhetorical questions. 
To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, a goldsmith overlays it with gold, casts it for its silver chains. He's too impoverished for an offering, chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. And so the Lord says in verse 21, Do you not know? And do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is He, the Lord, who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. You see, what we see here is God is the incomparable creator, king of all creation, the mightiest of rulers. He brings to nothing. He simply blows his breath, sends his spirit across kings, across queens, city councils, political parties, potentates, princes, and prime ministers, and he brings every single one of them to nothing. They all, with all of their philosophies and all of their politics, are stubble before him that cannot resist the wind of his fire. Please recognize that Jesus is very comfortably seated on his throne in the heavens right now. Reclined and relaxed while the nations rage. And intimately with us, speaking tender care in our sorrows and sufferings. You see, what these words teach us is that, what can man do to me? Nothing. We fear both rejoicing and trembling before the Lord. And so, we carve wood to compare him, paint pictures to depict him, cast a mold to capture him. You see, this ancient language of idols is ever-present across the world today. There's many restaurants you can go to in town, and when you walk in, you're going to see the food offering to the idol right when you walk into that restaurant. We devote our lives, though. We, we may look at that and say, I don't create idols. But yes, you do. And yes, even we as believers do that. Because what we can do in our trials, and here's the thing with troubles and trials. They simply expose what's in our hearts. We can never say to someone, you made me. We can never say to someone, yeah, but if, if you hadn't, then I wouldn't. No. We are always responsible for all of our own sins, and no one can cause us to be so. Whatever happens, whatever comes out of us is what's coming out of our hearts. And so what can happen in trials and troubles is that we take our eyes off of the Lord, who we think can't see us anyways, and then we begin to look for false saviors. We wouldn't call it that, but it's what we do. Our homes, our children, our degrees, our bank accounts, the climate, politicians, anything that we can think that can save us, we will deify. We will functionally baptize, as it were. We don't need to make an image of God because he has already given us his image in his son, Jesus Christ. We look to Jesus, his life, his cross work, and his tomb for our hope and our security. I have a question about the idolatry. What if you got, walking out of these doors, 
if you walk out these doors, what would make you truly feel happy and secure in this life finally? If you walked out these doors and you just got this or got rid of that or this situation happened, you walked out these doors and if you finally got that, then you'd really be happy and really secure. You really need to think about that question. Because any answer that doesn't begin with Jesus exposes the deep heart idols in our lives. The sickness removed, that relationship fixed, all of those things. Any answer other that doesn't begin with Jesus, as practical and prudent as it might be, if you can have that without Jesus, you've made it an idol. And you functionally are orienting your life around anything or anyone. Because we can turn anything or anyone at any time into an ultimate source of trust, satisfaction, and hope. So no, these words 700 years before the birth of Christ aren't just ancient language. And no, it's not just for those religions that actually build physical idols. It's for every single human heart that has ever walked the face of the earth. As Calvin has said, our hearts are idol factories. And the thing is, when we turn anyone or anything into an idol, especially relationships, we are now asking them to do and be what only Jesus can do and be. Which means then that we will make that marriage, that parenting, the grandkids, the broken relationship, the bank account, the education, whatever your thing is or things are or as our things always change, we all have to be vigilant and on guard. Whatever it is, we deify those things and we will crush them because they will never produce for us what only Jesus can give. And so you will be the source of destroying your marriage, your kids, your grandkids, your bank accounts, your education, whatever it is, all those things. And so what we are called here is that we are called to look to the Lord and be comforted by his majesty, not an invented majesty of making an idol that somehow represents or pleases the Lord. And so Jesus in his grace speaks to us by his spirit to, to give those idols, to give the marriage, the desire of marriage, maybe the desire to get out of a marriage the desire of children, any of those things, and grandchildren, whatever, wherever our hearts are prone, marriages and children are good things, and, and, and working hard for the Lord are good things, and bank accounts aren't bad things, but we can do bad things with good things. And so the good thing's not the problem, it's what my heart is doing with it. And so Jesus, by his grace, exposes this to us so that we can repent of that and give all of those things back to him. And what Jesus is doing is he is sitting as the attentive king above the heavens, risen and ascended shepherd king, who even in our functional idolatry shepherds us and leads us patiently and tenderly, bearing with us. He knows that we are dust, and he is taking the long game, as it were, of sanctification in our lives until he glorifies us. And so the question at this point of this interrogation, since this is who God is, friends, it is time for you to lay anything you are holding on to down. Anything that you're trusting in and putting above Jesus at the foot of his throne and give it to him. Because never forget, he is always a glad and welcoming savior. And he'll never turn you away. And why hope in anything of creation when the creator is calling you to himself to enjoy him in his glory as he tends to you? And that then leads to our fourth and final point. The third cycle of interrogation, God's people then wait for him. Look at verse 25. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them by name. By the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Verse 27, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? 
So here he is exposing. This is the grace where God is not just giving the grace of who he is, but he's putting their hearts on display to show them what they've been trusting in or how they've been doubting or how they've been discouraged. We looked at verse 27 at the beginning. Prone to misinterpreting our sufferings and troubles and therefore prone to misinterpreting who God is in himself and the gift of his son, the very God who flung the stars into the sky set the constellations in place, and calls them by name. And so then, he concludes by verse 28 saying, Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. We have known, and you are hearing, this is the everlasting triune God, creator of the heavens and the earth. We need to gaze and fix our eyes at the incomparably perfect one who calls each star by name, infinite and inexhaustible in power, whoever sees us, and is working his good in your life, even though you don't see it and certainly can't feel it. He is working. You see, our God inhabits eternity. He has always been. He always will be and can never not be. And the wisdom of his understanding in the gospel is unfathomable. And the sum of his attributes, no, no end. He is, as I said earlier, all perfection all at once. None can contend with him. None can stay his hand. None can accuse God of doing wrong or being foolish. Indeed, all will fall before him. And so what does he say to you and me? What does he say to all his people? What then is the answer to all these rhetorical questions when it's you, Lord, and you alone is the answer to all of them, the answer he says to us is this, wait. Did you see it? It's the last verse. Verse 31. But they who wait. And then he explains what those who wait receive from him. What he does for them. And that small tiny little word wait one of the simplest and yet most profound words in the bible pregnant with all theological freight we are to wait for the lord wait for the lord wait for the lord through troubles wait for the lord through sufferings and trials Remember Psalm 23. It's his rod and staff that comfort us through the valley of the shadow of death. And it is the good shepherd who is shepherding us through the valley of the shadow of death. We wait for the Lord. The same Hebrew word in some of your translations can be translated as hope. Those who hope in the Lord. It can be translated as those who look to the Lord. It carries the idea of patient expectancy. In our text, patient expectancy in trials. Everything in our culture, in our day and age, wants to do everything it can to remove even the idea of hardship and suffering from your life. Anything. All the medications, all the distractions, amusing ourselves to death, and more. But what God says in our trials and suffering is wait for the Lord. And so, dear friends, does that describe you? It's not how good of waiters 
we are, but that we ultimately wait for the Lord. I need to remind you that Jesus is coming back for his people. The shepherd king is coming to dwell on the face of this earth and remake the whole thing so that he can dwell with his sheep. But until then, we are called to wait, to endure, to persevere, to look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Setting that example for us, that prototype that we might follow. And so we wait upon the Lord. And do you see how God designed the results? Those who wait trustingly, it's those who are strengthened through troubles. There is strength in the waiting. And then the connection is waiting, but then, (coughs) excuse me, there's waiting, strengthening, and then running and walking and not fainting through trials. It's about endurance. Jesus has promised to never leave you and to never forsake you. He has promised to be with us always. So Christian, take heart. God is tending you as his precious lamb. Jesus is is seated on the heavens, and there is nothing that the world can do to us that doesn't pass through his hands. So we walk in his ways and we patiently endure. Friends, if you're considering Christ, come to him now. Renounce your sins. Take your troubles and trials. Repent of those sins, all those hardships. Bring them to Jesus because he is the glad and welcoming Savior. Cry to Jesus. Give your life to him. Follow the king all your days. And dear church, the final component is this. Suffering is personal, but not private. You need to enlist those who will come alongside you, not like Job's friends, but true friends in Christ who can come alongside you in your suffering and lift you up in prayer, meet those tangible needs, those who can provide that comfort both physically and emotionally, internally, as verse 1 showed us. Church, we need each other in the midst of hardships and trials. So reach out to those who you're close with and enlist them to help you. Amen? Lord, we thank you for the gift of Christ, the grace that flows from his veins, the blood that washes away our sins, and the unshakable hope that we have that you will never leave us nor forsake us. So, Father, by your Spirit now, open our hearts and our mouths to rejoice and sing your praises. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Friends, let's stand to sing this song, and then I'll come back up afterwards to lead us to the Lord's table.